Well, good morning to everyone. I trust you all had a good Fourth of July holiday. I do want to acknowledge the uh, celebration of Independence Day. The grand experiment that is the United States of America began 238 years and two days ago. And while we're not a perfect country, we are a great country, and it's the evidence of God's common grace to us uh, that, that we're able to, to live here and to serve Him and worship Him here. Before we jump into the text for this morning, I want to recap a couple of things from the last few sermons that are going to kind of build a foundation that we're going to jump off of in Exodus chapters 25 through 33 today. You'll remember, uh, I think three weeks ago, Tim preached in chapters 19 through 23, and he established that the basis for following the Ten Commandments that were given there in chapter 20, that the basis for that was not duty, but it was the grace already shown to the Israelites. So God speaks directly to the Israelites and says to them in Exodus 20, verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He then proceeds, God does, to list off the Ten Commandments. The basis for, hey, you should really follow these rules, was not that following the rules would win them favor with God, but that God had already saved them and that keeping the covenant is how they would enjoy their status as God's people, what would set them apart as a holy people, And it's what would honor the name of God. Another way to think of it is, I've saved you, now here's how you ought to demonstrate that you're saved. You'll also recall that in in these chapters that God speaks to them, He gives them the Ten Commandments, and they do not like it. They ask Moses to speak to the Lord for them because they can't handle it when God speaks directly to them. This, of course, established the very clear need that the people had for an intercessor or a mediator, and that theme is going to be extremely important today. Then, in Exodus chapter 24, Chad showed us that the people gladly affirmed the covenant in full. In Exodus uh, 24, verse 7, they say, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people, And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So that's going to provide a foundation for understanding our text today. And with that, uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we do confess to you that, that we are a sinful people, just like the Israelites before us. We confess that we don't always honor you. We confess that we don't always cherish your word. We pray now, as we study this text, that your spirit would change our hearts. We pray that the spirit would make this text come alive with all the beauty, wonder, and meaning which is contained in it. We pray that our hearts would be changed by it. Let your word work in our lives in such a way that we would be obedient to it with faith that you are who you say you are and that your word is to be trusted. We pray this not just for our benefit, not just for our salvation, but to your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So if you're looking at the bulletin, you're probably freaking out. We've got lots of chapters to cover today. Don't worry, we're not going to read through all of chapters 25 through 33. Though, I do wonder what would happen if we did that uh, one week. I think, I think we should make that happen sometime. I dare say, though, that uh, you would think whoever is preaching that week lazy. And so I'm not going to do it. I'll let somebody else do that. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to relatively quickly, we're going to get through chapters 25 through 31, and then we're going to camp out a little bit longer in chapters 32 and 33. So, point one for the sermon, God provides the means by which He dwells with the people. So chapters 25 through 31 can be summed up as God giving the people the mechanisms and terms by which He will dwell with His people. In order to dwell with His people... The gap caused by sin must be bridged. Chapter 25 establishes the contributions for the sanctuary, details about the ark, the table for the bread of presence, the golden lampstand. Chapter 26 provides details on the construction of the tabernacle. Chapter 27 gives further detail about the altar and the court. And then 28 through 31 mostly deals with the priests, what they'll wear, what they'll do, and how they'll do it. Again, the main takeaway from this chunk of chapters here is that God is providing the means by which He will dwell with the people. This is best summed up in Exodus 29, verses 45 through 46. So right after providing the details for the priest about sacrificial offerings, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. (coughs) Excuse me. So a couple of takeaways from these chapters. First is the level of detail and specificity that God provides for the construction of the various things in chapters 25 through 31. It's partially why we're not... Uh, reading through it. I recommend that you do because you see the very specific things that God requires for him to dwell with the people. There's a level of detail for the tabernacle, the ark, the priestly vestments, what they wear and what they do that is only rivaled by the detail in the law itself. God sets the terms and the details by which the people will come to worship. Second, Look at the ways in which this setup echoes what we see in the Garden of Eden. You remember that Adam fellowshiped freely with God in the Garden. And this isn't that. This is more restricted than that. You can think of it even as a veiled Eden because there is there's literally and figuratively a veil between God and the people. They're similar in that both the Garden and the Tabernacle contained precious metals and jewels. Both of them were also guarded by a cherubim, the garden literally, uh, a literal cherubim, and of course the Ark of the Covenant overshadowing the mercy seat, there is a, uh, basically a statue of a cherubim. Both the garden uh, creation of which the garden was a part and the uh, creation of the tabernacle were products of the God said, right? So in The creation account in Genesis, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And here 
In Exodus, we see that the instructions for the tabernacle were marked by, and the Lord said. So very similar. And that's not an accident. The tabernacle was an opportunity for a partial restoration for the fellowship with God that was lost in the fall. So the consequences of the fall and the continued sin of the people made that type of fellowship that God had with Adam in the garden impossible. This is why the people can't handle it when God communicates to them directly. And this is why the tabernacle is a partial restoration of Eden, but a veiled Eden. There was the literal veil in the tabernacle and later in the temple that separated the area where God would dwell from the people. And the priests themselves provided a figurative veil in that they represented a separation or mediation between the people and God. The best summation of the entire setup here without reading through all of the chapters can be found in Hebrews chapter 9. So if you would, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be coming back to it uh, at the end, so it might be helpful to keep your thumb there. Alright, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the, verse, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The author of Hebrews says, check out Exodus. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself first and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So not only does the author of Hebrews here give us a great summary of the setup that we see in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, but he also points out the problem. Look again in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The tabernacle, the priest, the sacrifices... All of it is temporary, and it must be repeated over and over and over. So, file that away. We're going to be coming back to that uh, here in a little bit. Point number two. God cannot dwell with a sinful people. So, if we look back in Exodus, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 32. Let's, Let's remember the setting here. 
Let's remember what got us to this point in chapter 32. So in chapter 24, the people affirm the covenant, and Moses goes back up to the mountain to get the details about the tabernacle, the ark, the priests, etc. All that stuff that we just summarized. Moses is up there hearing from God. Exodus 24, verse 18, tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. So, meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, the events that happen in Exodus 32 are happened simultaneous to Moses being up on the mountain. So at some point during that 40 days that Moses is gone, the events in Exodus 32 happen. So let's read Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6, and see what the Israelites were up to while Moses was up on the mountain hearing from God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Tim established for us that it was 50 days from when the people left Egypt to when they got to the base of the mountain, right? And prior to that 50 days, they saw some pretty crazy stuff go down in Egypt. The ten plagues happened, everything from a bloody Nile to gnats to frogs culminating in the killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt. They witnessed all of that. So then during the 50 days that they were trekking from Egypt to the base of the mountain, they also saw some pretty fantastic things. They saw God provide food for them in manna. They saw God provide water from a rock when they were in need of water. And of course, they watched God deliver them from Egypt a second time by parting the Red Sea and destroying their enemies. Then they get to the mountain and they get the Ten Commandments directly from God amidst a cloud of smoke, thunder, lightning, and trumpets. It was quite the spectacle. So much so that they clearly stated their fear of the Lord. You remember that their fear of the Lord was the basis for why they didn't want to hear from Him anymore and they wanted Moses to do that job for them. So this is what they've been through in the 90 days since they left until we get to this point, somewhat less than 90 days. So at least, uh, or less than 90 days, no more than uh, 40 days since affirming the covenant, They break it, and they do so in horrible fashion. So, 
If you're like me, you've read Exodus, uh, I hope you're not like me for a multitude of reasons, but mostly because I misinterpreted scripture for years. Uh, But if you're like me, you read Exodus 32 and you've read it several times and you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, these, these people are a mess. I see what's going on here. So they start off, if you look in verse 4, they ask for God's plural. You think, oh, well, they're polytheistic. They believe in more than one God. Clearly, they are breaking the first commandment by putting another God before the one true God. Commandment number one, broken, right? Clearly, obviously, commandment number two is broken because there's no question that they've made for themselves an idol. Not only does it break that commandment in general, but we see in Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, that God explicitly forbid them not only from not making idols, but explicitly from making idols or, quote, gods of gold. It also seems here like they're breaking the third commandment because they're taking the Lord's name in vain. And the way that it seems like they're doing that is that they're attributing to these false gods that they've propped up work that God has done, right? They say that it was these gods that rescued them from Egypt rather than the one true God. So if you're like me, this is how you've read the text in the past. It turns out, after studying this and looking into it, I think that that's actually incorrect. I think it's an incorrect reading. I have a couple of reasons for thinking that. I think uh, one thing is that the word that's translated God's plural in verse 4 is probably better translated as God or singular. There are a lot of uh, word studies that you can do on this word to understand how it can go either way, but I think there are some better reasons for that. The number one reason that I have for thinking that uh, it should be translated as singular is that elsewhere in Scripture it's translated as singular. So if you look in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 18, Nehemiah says, This is your God. Stop. No S. Singular. Right? Side note, if you're doing Bible study and one part of Scripture says something about another part of Scripture, best way to interpret it. Forget what the commentators say. Forget what the preachers say. Scripture is always the best way to interpret Scripture if that is available to you. Okay, the second reason why I think this is singular here and not plural is that the context here in, verse, in chapter 32 tells us that they're not worshiping other gods, but they are in fact making an idol of the one true God. In other words, they were attempting to create for themselves a physical manifestation of God. There are a couple of reasons to think this. Uh, They only made one calf, so they didn't make a multitude of calves or multiple animals. Elsewhere in the passage, when they refer back to it, it's referred to as an it, singular. But most importantly, if you look in verse 5, Aaron says that there will be a feast to the Lord. And if you look in your Bible, you'll notice that Lord there is in all caps. And that is, of course, the telltale sign that he's talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the most sacred name in all of Scripture for the one true God. So it's clear that Aaron thinks that in their idolatry, they're still worshiping God. Now, let's be very clear here. Lest we are tempted to think that this is somehow better, 
that they're only violating one commandment rather than violating at least three commandments. Let's look and see how God responds. Let's see how God takes their idolatry. So continuing on in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Um, I'm going to go off my notes here, and it's always danger when you do that. But I think this is hilarious, that God says to him, For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Who actually brought the people out? Moses was with him, and he led him, but God is actually the one who brought him out. And of course, they are God's people. It's almost like a, a parent saying about a child, You're never going to believe what your son did today, right? Um, I hear that occasionally. Uh, So he says to them, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So how does God respond to this breaking of the single commandment, the second commandment about idolatry? He wants to wipe them out and start over. That's how seriously he takes it. It may seem like a subtle perversion because they're, they're technically still worshiping God through their idolatry. But the key here is that it's not the way he told them to do it. So, it's a big deal because it's not the way he told them to do it. He decides the terms by which we worship him, not us, right? He is sovereign and 100% in control. We see his sovereignty explicitly stated in the very next chapter, in verse 19, where God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is a reminder to Moses in that passage that God is in charge. He is 100% in control. Even our very salvation is on His terms and not ours. So it stands to reason that the means by which we worship and follow Him would be on His terms as well, down to the nth degree. Like, don't make for yourself an idol. So first and foremost, the Israelites' idolatry is a violation of God's explicitly stated terms of worship. Another reason that this is a big deal is that it represents a failure to worship God by faith. You remember that Tim established that faith was what was required of the people in worship. Instead of worshiping by faith, the people needed something that they could touch. They needed something that they could see. They needed something that they could put their sacrifices and offerings in front of and something that they could build a feast around. But this is not how they, or we for that matter, are called to worship. We are called to worship by faith. So their leader had been gone for 40 days, and that caused such an anxiety in them that they, clear, they violated God's clear terms of worship and they broke what they had promised to God, that is, that they would worship by faith. The Israelites here deserve our condemnation. If you're looking at it and you're saying, yeah, they really messed up. Absolutely, they deserve our condemnation. 
But before we judge, anytime you judge a situation like this, it should first be a cause for self-reflection and examining ourselves. How often are we guilty of idolatry? I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to guess that you guys don't have a kiln in your backyard where you're melting down gold and taking tools and crafting uh, golden calves out of them. At least I hope not. Uh, If you do, talk to us afterwards. But that's not the only way that you can commit the sin of idolatry. So how often do we fail to live for Him on His terms? Remember, that's the primary violation. It's not the specifics. It's that they fail to honor God's explicit command. How often do we fail to live for God by faith? Do we not have faith that marriage, for example, is between a man and a woman and it is the right context for sex? Maybe if you're uh, a single person, this manifests itself in fornication or premarital sex, this lack of faith. Maybe if you're a married person, it manifests itself in addiction to pornography or adultery as evidence of a lack of faith. Do we not exhibit faith with our money and our possessions? How often do we buy things in order to fill a void that no, no item that we can own is ever going to fill? Just like the Israelites would never have been able to worship God through that golden calf, so too we are never going to be fulfilled by filling our houses with a bunch of junk. Do we not exhibit faith with our time? Have we made an idol of entertainment? This one is particularly convicting to me. So lest you think that uh, I'm, I'm literally standing above you saying this. So what I mean by, what I mean by that is I feel all of this the same. Uh, I, I, give, I get as good as I give, I guess is the way to put it. So do we make an idol of our time? No TV show is ever going to fill that void. You can watch all 10 seasons of Friends. I realize I'm dating myself. Um, You can watch all 10 seasons of Friends and Ross and Rachel don't ever end up together. You know why? Because they're not real. They don't exist. Fox, for whatever reason, will not let the TV show 24 die. It is the same thing over and over and over again. 24 hours a day or 12 this season. Jack is never going to defeat the terrorists. You know why? Because it's not real. And pastor, I apologize to you. This is going to hurt. Mayberry is not a real place. And Andy Griffith was just an actor. The point is, we idolize these things as if they are real. Do we, how often do we fail to exhibit faith with how we approach God? Do we fail to worship on His terms and live faithfully when we try to put Him in a box? Maybe that's fundamentalism. Maybe that's liberalism. Maybe it's treating God like the prize counter at Chuck E. Cheese. And certainly you know what I mean by that, right? You go and you play your games and you earn your tickets and then you take them up to the counter and you get your trinket. I promise you if that's how you approach God, if you put God in that box, what you get back will be less valuable than the junk that you get at the prize counter at Chuck E. Cheese. Anytime we treat God as a means to an end rather than the end itself, we are committing idolatry. Now, I want to be clear here. My point isn't that sex is bad, that we should never buy anything, that we should never watch TV, and that we shouldn't wait on God with faithful expectations. All of these things are good and appropriate in their proper context. 
when we take them outside that context, we idolize them and we fail to live by faith that God will provide that fulfillment. So we're right to condemn the Israelites here, but we first and foremost should humbly examine ourselves, our hearts, and our own idolatry. In the Garden of Eden, which we've already talked about, Adam and Eve failed to live by God's terms. He said, eat whatever you want except for that tree. What do they do? They, eat, they ate of that tree. In their own sin, they, they violated the clear commandment that God had given them, and it resulted in judgment, namely the fall of all creation and them getting kicked out of the garden. In the same way, judgment came to the Israelites. We see this back in Exodus 32. Remember, though, God wanted to completely wipe them out and start over. And what actually happens is somewhat more measured. Okay, So let's see what happens when Moses confronts Aaron about the Israelites' sin. So it's verses 22 through 34. So this is Aaron's reply when Moses confronts him. Aaron says... Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Lord, he's talking about Moses there. Um, He says, You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. This is just like Adam and Eve. So you recall in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam, Adam, what happened? Adam says, my wife gave me the fruit. God says to Eve, what happened? Eve says, the serpent tempted me to eat the fruit. No one takes ownership. It's just this, this chain of blame deflection, right? Aaron does the same thing here. And it's, if it weren't so grave and serious, it would be comical. He blames the people. Right? I mean, you know these people, they're wicked, and this is what they asked for. He even blames the fire. He leaves out the part where he uh, was a part of crafting this golden calf and just says, we threw the gold in and out popped this calf, as if the fire was somehow able to do that. Obviously, the blame is not successfully deflected. God judges, and while he doesn't completely wipe the people out and start over, the way he originally wanted, he judges harshly. In verse 27 through 29, we see that 3,000 men are killed as judgment for the idolatry of the people. So they broke one commandment, and that's how serious, how seriously God took it. There are further consequences of their sin. God further removes himself from the people. If we jump forward to chapter 33 in verse 2, we see that God sends an angel rather than going with the people himself. And in verse 3, he says, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And this gets back to the main point that we're on right now. God cannot dwell with a sinful people. Verse 4 in chapter 33 tells us that the people rightly understood the gravity of the situation because they mourned when God said that He wasn't going to go up with them. We see in verse 7 that the tent of meeting, which is itself already a representation of the separation between the people and God, gets moved outside the camp, further distancing God from the people. 
So how does this get resolved? Why is it that God uh, did not annihilate the entire bunch of the Israelites and only, I say only as if it's not significant, only eradicated 3,000 of them? Well, that brings us to point number three. The sinful people are reconciled through an intercessor. The people deserve to be annihilated for their sin. Let's be very clear about that. When God steps up and He says, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over, there is nothing wrong with that. It would have been just for a holy God to do precisely that to a sinful people. It is a reminder to us that any moment we walk on this planet and any breath that we take is God's grace allowing us to do so. He would have been right to annihilate the people for their sin. But for an intercessor, that's precisely what would have happened. So jump back to chapter 32 and look with me at verses 11 through 13. Excuse me. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why would the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Look at the reasons that Moses gives here as to why the Lord should relent from judgment. He doesn't say, don't wipe them out, they're terribly sorry and they'll never do it again. Wouldn't have been true. They do it again, right? He doesn't say, is what they did really that big of a deal? They were still worshiping you. They just kind of bungled the particulars. It's not as if they were worshiping some other God. They just needed something that they could put their hands on. They only broke the one commandment. And how important is that one anyway? This is not the response that Moses gives. He's not making excuses. He doesn't say, you know, God, this is really your fault. You called me up to the mountain and left them to their own devices. You know how they are. What did you expect? This is not how Moses responds. He doesn't attempt to deny that the people have sinned against God. He doesn't attempt to deny the significance of how they've sinned against God. He doesn't attempt to deny that the people are 100% responsible for what they've done and deserving of judgment. He seems to assume all of that. What he says to God, he appeals to the name of the Lord. He says, what will the Egyptians say about you if you do this? Remember, the Egyptians know all too well who God is. They have ten really good reasons to remember God. And so he says, essentially, your stated intent was to bring the people out of Egypt so they could serve you and worship you free of the confines of the slavery that they were under in Egypt. What will it do for your name if you wipe them out now after all of this? He also appeals to the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Moses is essentially saying, So now you're going to start over with this promise? Let these people, guilty though they may be, 
be the fulfillment of that promise. Again, he only appeals to things which honor God, nothing which esteems the people. And these are the only appeals that can be successfully made to God. And it turns out that Moses is successful here. We see in verse 14 that the Lord relented from wiping out all of the people. There were still consequences. We've already covered that 3,000 men were killed, so there was still bloodshed. Judgment was enacted by God through Moses, but the people as a whole were spared. The further consequence was that God would be further separated from the people, but Moses wouldn't have it. Turn with me back over to chapter 33, and let's read verses uh, 12 through 15. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And then skip down verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses pleads for the Lord to come with them. Think about what's happened here. Moses has already secured for the people freedom from God's judgment. God wants to wipe them out. Moses steps in. God compromises and doesn't wipe them all out. He's also already assured that they're going to enter the promised land. Okay, But that is not good enough for Moses. Verse 15, Moses says, If you're not coming, I don't want to go. Church, don't miss this. It is subtle, but it is absolutely huge. Let me make this idea more explicit with a question. If you could be free from the judgment of hell, and if you could get to heaven, would you be okay without God there? As a Christian, the answer to that question had better be no. In fact, John Piper, uh, he tweeted, this has been a long time, but it haunts me, and so I often think back on it. He tweeted and he said, if you would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, you will not be there. And what is his point? His point is the object of our worship and the goal of our worship is getting us to God. If it's anything less than that, if we're after God as a means to an end, then we're not going to get Him. If the very thing that we're after is not God Himself, then we will not get Him. So Moses interceded on behalf of the people, and because he found favor with God, God relented from annihilating them on the spot, and he agreed to go with them. On the basis of God's mercy and Moses' favor with God, in this particular instance, Moses' intercession saved the people, but his intercession didn't do anything 
to get at the root problem. The root problem is that people are still sinful and God is still holy and just. And ultimately, Moses was not any different than the people. As good a sinner as he was, he was still that. He was a sinner. And after his intercession, successful though it was in this instance, the tabernacle was still around. That veil between God and the people still existed. Sacrifices still had to be made on a regular basis to atone for sin. Blood had to be regularly shed. But praise God that Moses' intercession points us forward to something greater than Moses, to something permanent, so that the, to perfect the conscience of the worshiper, as Hebrews 9, 9 tells us. And with that, if you kept your thumb in Hebrews 9, turn back to Hebrews 9, and let's read there again. It, it'll be on the screen as well. So Hebrews 9, uh, starting in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest or the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing permanently an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under The first covenant. No more tents. No more goats. The veil that was figuratively erected between God and the people in the fall in the Garden of Eden, that gap between a holy, just God and a sinful people, it's gone. That same veil that was literally erected in the tabernacle and later in the temple, it has been torn in two. There are no more priests who have to go in and atone for their own sins before they can make sacrifices for ours. All of the temporary intercessors and mediators, the people needed to bridge the gap between themselves and God have been replaced once and for all. Let's be very clear about this. We still need a mediator. Praise God that we have one. We too are like the people trembling in the desert asking Moses to stand between us and God. We too fail to worship God on His terms and by faith as He's called us. God is still every bit as holy, He's still every bit as just, and He's every bit as fearful as He was on that mountain with the smoke and the thunder 
and the trumpets. None of that has changed. But He is also every bit as loving, every bit as merciful, and every bit as patient as He was to the Israelites. And He demonstrates that in that He sent His only Son to be that mediator, to be that intercessor between us and God. To be the perfect and final blood sacrifice shed for us and to be the ultimate high priest who entered once for all, period, end of story, into the most holy place. Not just for our sake, but for the glory of God's name. Let's pray.